0: We held hands and prayed, and um, there were kids that asked to pray with us. And um, because when you look out, because Abby came up and sat with, said Mary, look, look at the exit. How are we going to get out? And I think you know, with the embers and the wind and just the massive trees that we were under, I know that I just kept praying. We just kept praying that. <laughs> that we would, if it had to be, that we would die of smoke inhalation. Not, so we didn't want those children to suffer.
1: You're listening to an American Red Cross in Greater New York podcast. On November 8, 2018, the small California town of Paradise and nearby communities in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada Mountains were decimated by fire. Fueled by high winds and drought conditions, the campfire, as it was officially called, traveled at breakneck speed, destroying roughly 19,000 homes, businesses, and other structures in its path. Tragically, 85 lives were lost, making it the deadliest wildfire in California history. Hello everyone, this is Michael deville Communications Officer for the American Red Cross in Greater New York. Welcome back to the third season of our podcast, where we look at some of the disasters that shaped our country over the past 20 years. In the next two episodes, we'll discuss the campfire from the perspectives of those who escaped the flames, those who saved lives, as well as those who helped community members recover. This is all very personal to me as I traveled to Northern California to support the Red Cross response to this tragedy. I arrived the day after the fire destroyed the town of Paradise and served as public affairs representative there for about a week. And it was one of my most intense and unforgettable Red Cross experiences in my 15 years with the organization. Maybe it was the violence and speed with which the fire moved, or the shock and fear so many experienced. But there was something very unsettling about this disaster, something very different. I vividly recall the terrifying stories of families fleeing their homes, fleeing for their lives, with little to no notice other than the sounds of the approaching flames, which many compared to that of a freight train. There were memories of compassion as well, from the Red Cross volunteers who came from all over the country to assist, and the countless community members doing their part to help. This episode is broken up into two parts to explore the different aspects of the campfire story. We start with the story of four inspiring individuals from the town of Paradise. The first signs that there was trouble in Paradise began early in the morning on November 8th as hospital ICU nurse manager Alan Pierce and elementary school teachers Mary Peterson Ludwig and Abigail Gersberger-Davis were starting their workdays. Alan Pierce was born in Brooklyn, New York, but moved to Southern California as a child. He settled down in Paradise in 2003.
2: The morning of the campfire, I got to work a little bit before 7 for, a, for an early meeting. And uh, it was a sunny day, maybe a little bit of a, a breeze. About half an hour past 7, uh, I, I received a text from my wife that there was a lot of smoke and ash. And I went out, I stepped outside and, and um, you know, and, and saw what she was describing.
1: This is Mary Peterson Ludwig, who was born and raised in Paradise. She worked as a teacher in the Paradise School District for more than 25 years.
0: When I got to school, I immediately knew something was really wrong when, you know, students who were dropped off at the same time started running in from the playground because there were massive um, pieces of wood and pine cones falling on fire.
1: Abigail Gerstberger Davis is also a native of Paradise and fellow school teacher alongside Mary at the Ponderosa Elementary School at the time of the campfire.
3: I didn't know that anything was different until I got to uh, Billy Road, which was about five miles from my house. Um, and, and as I drove down the hill, I saw uh, a yellow plume of smoke. And, and like you know, we say, we're used to wildfires up here. Um, usually you don't see that yellow, and that was that was the sign that it was pretty close. And from that moment on, it just, it escalated very quickly, Mm -hmm. Uh, went from orange to the, the smoke cloud was right over our school.
4: But that smoke cloud was dark and black, and it was unlike any smoke cloud I had ever seen.
1: Paradise School bus driver Kevin McKay, who had been up late the night before the campfire tending to his son who had the flu, was also on the job that morning.
4: I, in fact, when I got the call for the evacuation, was on my way back down from Megalia to Paradise, and uh, I I just happened to be the first responding bus that was empty. Uh, I had just unloaded all of my kids at Pine Ridge School at about uh, 7.45, and uh, the call went over uh, right around 8 a.m., and I was at the school by about 8.05.
1: Almost at the exact same time back at Allen's hospital, the leadership team there convened quickly and made the momentous decision to evacuate the entire hospital.
2: Evacuating a hospital, I could best describe it as controlled chaos—a bit of herding cats. You know, everything's going towards a direction, but you know, you're dealing with high emotions. You're dealing with sick individuals. You're dealing with uh, equipment. It's—it's it's a lot of movement. Um, to get all these people down the hallway out one exit, Um, but this evacuation went very smoothly for for the situation. At this point, all the skies are orange and black and gray, and um, there's no longer any sun, and fire is now surrounding the entire campus. So I just made sure that they were all safe, and once they were all in their cars, then I was able to get in my truck and start it. And I saw a couple of people wandering, in the in, you know, a couple of staff members that were just kind of wandering aimlessly. Got them in the car with me uh, to you know try to evacuate.
1: As the school was evacuated, Abby and Mary helped their young students board Kevin's bus. We made
3: it into the classroom. We waited there for a little bit. I just had the kids coloring that morning, something that they felt safe doing. Uh, And I quickly moved to another kindergarten classroom and that's where I brought my laptop with me and we called as many parents as we possibly could before we were quickly moved back into the cafeteria and then shortly onto the bus.
0: I've worked for Paradise for many, many years and I knew all my bus drivers and I said, Who are you? Well, I'm Kevin. <laughs> Three months on the job. And, I, he's, and he told me he needed me. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not leaving, but you better be good.
4: <laughs> I I looked her in the eye and I said, I'm going to need you. <laughs> and she, she, you know, was taken aback a little bit. You know, there were several teachers um, putting their students on the bus and then they were headed off to help their families or, or do whatever they needed to do next. And, uh, you know, Mary and Abby were gracious enough to stay with me on the bus um, so that I had some help with the students in what I had no idea would turn into a six hour trip.
3: I remember one of, my, one of my three students started crying instantly when I put her on the bus and it didn't feel right from the beginning and I remember her hearing her cry and thinking, yeah, I can't. you can't leave these kids without their parents.
4: Within 30 minutes of us getting on the onto the trip, so probably by about 9:15 to 9:30 in the morning, the sky was completely black. Things began to to catch on fire that were in our immediate proximity. You know, uh, t- directly to the right side of the bus, there was a building ablaze. Um, McDonald's was on fire on the left side of the bus. Um, I could see in the rearview mirror a, a you know a 200 foot. 250-foot-tall pine tree just explode in the rear-view mirror.
0: Here's Mary again. There was a lots of cries for Mommy and Daddy, and that was, and we, we had to just, like, you know, keep ourselves, you know, from being emotional. Abby and I just kept getting asked the same question over and over again, which was, you know, some of us remembered our names. Some of the kids would just say, teacher, teacher what time is it? Is it midnight? And it was nine. Um, and so they just, they were so disoriented as to what time it was, but it was that black. It was that dark. So some kids would turn and look out the window and other kids would hide from it. And this one little little thing just wedged herself under the seats.
3: Every child was different at different times on the bus. So sometimes, you know, kids were even laughing and having fun playing with whatever they had in their backpack and talking with each other. And then other kids, you know, were in tears because they, they were thinking about their cat that was outside when they left home. Um, they didn't know where their family was. Um, so just trying to distract them. I will reassure them that you know your your family, your parents are really smart and they're they're doing their very best right now, and I know they're safe.
1: As Alan and his colleagues tried to drive away from the hospital, which was surrounded by fire, they ran into some frightening obstacles. The road
2: gridlocked, uh, and then it would kind of open up for a little bit. I started following a, a fire truck, thinking maybe they had a better path. You know, they could people would move out of their way, but but cars were starting to break down in the heat. And uh, I'm doing everything I can to keep the tires off. The, if I go across the fire, I'm waiting so I can just drive across and get off of it again. Uh, so every now and then people would pull into those areas and I'd see their cars catch, I saw this person's like, car catch on fire and they had to, you know, the, the bumper starts melting off the back and they have to get out and run. And then I ended up trapped be, between this burning truck and the fire truck. So I've got my jacket up against the window to kind of block the heat, to block the heat coming off of that, and I've, I've seen my mirror start melting. <laughs> the fire truck they put their blankets up against the windows now, so now they have those you know space blanket things I guess they're cut for the windows uh, and what appeared to be just preparing to burn over.
1: Meanwhile, back on the school bus, both the children and the adults were in danger of succumbing to dangerous levels of smoke inhalation.
0: even Kevin. Um, tapped me and said, Mary, Mary, are you okay? And, and I, you know, we were just all very, very um, lethargic.
1: Here's Abby again.
0: There was so much smoke
3: on the bus that I felt my energy drop, and I had been pacing that aisle all day, and I had to sit down and collect myself because I, I was feeling weak. I was feeling tired. Um, I was having a hard time breathing, and I knew if I was feeling that way, those kids were too. And I remember thinking as I was sitting
0: there that it was quiet on the bus. And that was that little snippet, like that little sliver of time where the hope kind of went out the door for a few minutes. And we held hands and prayed. And um, there were kids that asked to pray with us and um because when you look out because abby came up and sat with said mary look look at the exit how are we going to get out and i think you know with the embers and the wind and just the massive trees that we were under i know that i just kept praying we just kept praying that (laughs) sorry (laughs) that we would if it had to be, that we would die of smoke inhalation, not, so we didn't want those children to suffer.
1: Although Allen and those on the school bus were in different areas of the fire zone, none of them were sure they would make it out alive.
2: I recorded a video just in case, like saying, just in case I don't make it, I really tried to get out of here, and I love you, and you know, to my family, to my to my kids, to my wife. and." Um, yeah that was a big that was a that was a very intense moment and and then I buried it in my center console, hoping it would make it through right after I recorded it and I put it away all of a sudden I hear this like boom and like this this truck that had been on fire next to me was now like laying on its side and kind of like had a explosion but then there was a path out to the like like kind of forest to like at least an area that I could turn around in and so I turned at, turned out and back around and it was this bulldozer I had cleared it and i was able to make it back out onto the road and and i went back up to the hospital
0: i remember saying to abby and she saying to me okay mary don't cry okay don't cry so my my moment was a little bit like after her moment and her moment and so we just kind of lifted each other up and then there's kevin going all right girls <laughs> got a job to do yeah, yeah. Well he just had a, an amazing and strong sense of leadership. I think he put me completely at ease. He was always thinking about the safety of the kids. Um, every action I saw him um, take was one that was going to be the best for the safety of the kids on that bus. I looked over at a couple of
3: kids and like I said I saw him leaning forward on the seat and I kind of tapped their shoulder and I said, hey, are you okay? And they would tell me that they're just, I'm just tired and I started thinking, there's so much smoke in this bus, there's smoke all around us, it's hot in here, these kids haven't had water for hours. And so I just quickly went up to the front of the bus and I told Kevin that the kids were starting to fall asleep. And um, I mean, he it was like he already had thought about it coming
4: I had on a cotton undershirt. Um, and so I knew that uh, if I, I took off my golf shirt, took off the undershirt, put my golf shirt back on and started ripping my undershirt into small squares, uh, we had to make enough you know, for each student on the bus uh, to have one. And we kind of stacked the layers up um, of the, the torn shirt and then poured the water over it and, uh, and then Mary and Abby took the shirt from there and, and took over and ended up essentially making a, an impromptu breathing mask uh, for the students.
0: I think it was urgent to get off the bus and find water because we had enough to just get the, the there's 22 kids, get the, the rags a little bit wet. And these kids were so dehydrated from the smoke and the heat. Um, and so I got off the bus, because we were in standstill traffic. We had not moved. There was a man, Kevin's like, oh, there's a guy out there who was trying to save his property with a hose. I took one of the empty water bottles off to get it refilled. And I told him, I said, I'm, I'm on a bus with 22 kids that we need water. And he ran into his house and he brought out a half flat, a half case of water about. But Abby and I were like, we've been trapped for so long we were like we can't give each we don't have enough for everyone to get their own water bottle so this is a this was one of the emotional parts for me is having to ration and so what Abby and I did is um, she took the side the door side of the bus and I took the driver's side of the bus and we had the kids tilt their heads back and we squirted the water and down their throats for them and we did the bus lurched, while we spilled on them and
3: and their poor little lips were so dry yeah i mean their faces were flushed from dehydration and their lips were totally chapped
1: when they arrived back at the hospital alan and his co-workers had a brief moment of relief before realizing that they needed to take quick action to save the lives of those around them
2: i get up to the top of the road and just head back to the hospital and um we get there and several other people from my team were right behind me. And we get back there and we're hugging and kind of laughing at the absurdity of it. And, and then we look around and see other people are pulling them to this hospital parking lot because they couldn't get farther down the street or they're looking for help. And nobody in that entire parking lot, including the fire, medics, nurses, doctors, had anywhere else to go at this point. There was no out, there was no escape at this point. All the main roads were shut down with fire, and we break back into the hospital. The hospital had all been locked up, so we break back into the hospital to get equipment and um, and uh, medication and like even just food and drinks. You know, we're going to the cafeteria and just like piling waters and Gatorades into into um, carts and bringing it out and getting oxygen tanks and getting crash carts and. And then we start setting up a triage unit. You know, this is all kind of emergency 101. And the hospital caught on fire. We had to move the entire triage out to the helipad, which is um, asphalt connected to the parking lot, a big circle that had already burned over. So uh, we felt that that was the safest place uh, to move it to. We moved all the equipment to the middle and moved all the patients out to the edges, and just so we could kind of keep an eye on everything. Around two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, the firefighter said, Hey, this, the road pence that main road again was opened up enough to attempt another evacuation. And um, and so we started loading up patients into the ambulances and, and other kind of police vehicles and, and things that were available. And yeah, we just kind of cruised out of there, like all in this big caravan until we made it all the way down to Oroville and at that point. Um, You know, text started popping up on my
1: phone, and I was able to call my wife and tell her I was safe. Despite the hazards and dangers around them, the passengers of the bus persevered through a harrowing six hour ride and escaped the fire that had engulfed the town of Paradise.
4: As we got to Highway 99 um, and we could see the sky again, we had time to just be thankful that we made it out. Like it was. It was a moment to take a breath and then sort of think about everything that we had just been through, but not really, because there was still tons of work to do. I mean, we're heading the wrong way. I got a bus full of kids that have now been on the bus for close to six hours. Biggs Elementary School uh, set up a room for us. Uh, They opened up one of their first grade classrooms and put a movie on for the kids. And my main focus at that point was that I'm not leaving until each of these kids is back together, reunited with their families. When the, when the parents you know, would get there, um, I didn't see one parent that wasn't just completely emotional, upset, um, crying, and just so happy to be reunited with their son or daughter.
0: I remember one little boy who was really strong, and when he saw his daddy, um, he just ran and hugged his dad and started sobbing, and then the dad started crying, and then the dad hugged me, and then I started crying.
1: (laughs) Alan was also emotional as he was reunited with his family and learned of the fire's impact on his neighborhood.
2: Like, I just remember my wife just jumping up and wrapping her legs around me and just, you know, and my kids crying and... In the fire, we lost everything. We had our vehicles, um, but we lost everything. The house was burned to the ground. My entire neighborhood was gone. Everyone's neighborhood around us gone. Maybe, like, every randomly you'll see, like, two or three houses standing, maybe one, standing looking like it was not touched.
1: Despite the devastating losses of that day, both Kevin and Alan have tried to stay focused on the positives, including the way neighbors, coworkers and first responders all stepped up to save lives.
4: The tragedy and the loss of life that happened in Paradise um, was significant. Yet I, I reflect on people coming together saved so many lives. If not for individuals making a decision to put themselves in harm's way to help others, that loss of life could have been significantly higher. People made it out and they made it out alive and they got their family and their neighbors
2: and their community members down out of the fire together. But I'm representing so many other hospital team members and first responders and police and fire that were all there feet on the ground helping. There were so many heroes and so many people making the right choice and the right decisions that day to help other people. And it's it's an honorable group to be included in.
1: I wanna give a big thank you to all who shared their experiences with us. And I also wanna offer my heartfelt thoughts and compassion to those still coping with the trauma and grief brought on by the campfire. Thanks to all who tuned in, and we encourage you to listen to part two, where we provide a behind-the-scenes look at one of the largest shelters open for campfire evacuees. This episode was produced by Chikong Lu and me, Michael DeVolpierre. It was edited by Kong Lu. And I also want to thank Barbara Gaines and Olivia Kozlevkar, as well as Matthew Lecour for their help putting together this episode. If you liked what you heard, we encourage you to comment and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you all for listening. Let's continue to look out for one another.